0: Hello again, dear listener, and welcome to episode 11. As always, I am your host, Andrew Scott Willis, and this is the podcast where we talk not just about movies, but the stories behind actually getting them made. 2016's Arrival gives us an interesting new take on a sci-fi film wrapped in a context that I personally have never seen before. Some of my favorite movies are based around subject matter that rarely makes it into Hollywood blockbusters, and Arrival's exploration of language and how it shapes the world around us falls squarely in that category. But of course, before we get too far into it, let's crack a beer. Spoilers ahead, this is the Movie Brewer Podcast. My beer today is Orbital Elevator by Burlington Beer Co. Burlington Beer Co. is based out of Williston, Vermont, which is really just outside of Burlington, so I'm gonna say it's in Burlington, Vermont. It was founded in 2014 by a man named Joe Lemna. Lemna, like many of the founders I talk about on this podcast, was an avid home brewer before opening Burlington, but also comes with a long resume of brewing experience including big-name breweries like Dogfish Head and Evolution Brewing. So we know he knows what he's doing. In what I guess is becoming a tradition, the orbital elevator I have in front of me is an 8.3% beer. It's a double IPA, and I have once again burdened myself with a high ABV. I will try my best to struggle through this for all of you. It's brewed with an oat malt, something that's more common in stouts and porters, but should prove to be an interesting texture. It's hopped with mosaic, Eldorado, and Simcoe hops, so I'm really ready for a beer here with some complexity to it. So I'm going to open this up and we'll see what we get. In what I suppose was inevitable, I just splashed beer all over the windscreen of my microphone. Everything seems to be fine, but... (laughs) But I'm going to be smelling this beer uh, as I do these for quite a few episodes, I think. The orbital elevator I have in front of me is actually a darker beer than I was expecting, which is not to say that it's dark at all. It's just, it's a very light on the edges, if that makes sense. And when you look in the middle... It, uh, it gets much denser. I think that has to do with the fact that it's quite a hazy beer overall. It's got not a lot of head to it. I'd say less than a finger, honestly. Maybe a pinky finger. Uh, in terms of aroma, it's quite potent. Uh, it's really mildly citrusy, I'd say. Maybe a little bit of fruity in there. But that whole aroma filled the booth pretty quickly. Uh, and let's go ahead and see what it tastes like. That's really good. It delivers on the citrus and on the hops. A lot of double IPAs can be kind of a kick in the teeth, and I feel like I say this with every IPA, but this one's, I won't lie, does have a sting to it. Um, But in terms of overall mouthfeel, it's not very sharp, and it goes down pretty smoothly. Overall, I think... Yeah, overall, I think this is is well-balanced, is... Not overwhelming in any particular category, but not lacking in flavor profile. So I'm excited to drink this. I think the tie-in here, uh, if you've seen the movie, is pretty obvious. So it seems we've arrived at our film for the episode. And yes, I'm getting lazier and lazier with my transitions here. All right, so I said this last episode, for those of you listening, And I'm gonna attempt this week's summary in the best movie trailer voice I can muster. So here we go. I'll probably just do this again regularly afterwards, but we're gonna try it. So strap in. In a world where 12 alien spacecrafts have suddenly arrived on Earth's doorsteps, expert linguist Louise Banks is recruited by the military and charged with finding a way to communicate before the nervous nations of Earth turn on the aliens and each other. Yeah, okay. That was as ridiculous as I anticipated it would be. We're going to move on. The history of this film really starts with a man named Eric Heiserer, a screenwriter who had read and become obsessed with a sci-fi short story called Story of Your Life by a man named Ted Chang. Heisserer was mostly known for horror films and the like, but had continually pitched the film all around Hollywood for several years, honestly without any real interest, until 2011, when he pitched it to a company called 21 Laps Entertainment. 21 Laps is the production company of producer-director Sean Levy, who, at the time, was probably known best for the Night at the Museum films. Since then, you probably know the company for Netflix's Stranger Things. When Heisserer pitched Story of Your Life to executive producers Dan Levine and Dan Cohen, they loved it as much as he did. They immediately agreed with Heiser, that this was a story worth telling and brought it onto 21 Laps Docket. The first step in making this film would of course be getting the rights. Ted Chang, the original author, had never really been approached by Hollywood to adapt one of his short stories and he was very skeptical. He was very protective of his stories and wanted to make sure that it would be treated right. Hollywood is littered with examples of films that the rights were bought out and then they were turned into terrible, trashy studio films. And Chang didn't want that to happen to his story. Around this same time that the Dans, Dan Levine and Dan Cohen, were talking to Ted Chang, they also approached Denis Villeneuve to direct. He... Also had concerns about the story. He's known for being a very particular director, making sure that the things that he does align with his mentality and his vision. And he was hesitant as well. So, the interesting thing that the dance did was sort of use each of them to convince the other. They went to Villeneuve and said, would you be interested in directing... If Ted Chang gave his endorsement and was on board with the script that we were producing, they went to Ted Chang and said, Hey, are you on board with letting us adapt your story if Denis Villeneuve is on board? And it kind of worked. Chang was impressed by Villeneuve and signed off on the rights. Villeneuve himself took more convincing, but also he had two movies lined up at the time and didn't really have the time to consider officially signing on when he was first approached. Villeneuve would then go on to direct Sicario and Prisoners, which, while not notable box office successes per se, were lauded as very well-made films and put Villeneuve squarely in mainstream Hollywood sites. But I'm getting ahead of myself. With the rights secured, The dance teamed with Heiserer to start to pitch this incarnation of the film to all of the studios again. They originally went to Fox, which 21 Laps had a first look agreement. And they had issues with the idea and passed. They then took it to the other studios who also passed. It's... Look... Arrival doesn't read like a classic sci-fi script. It doesn't read as something that you can look at and say, yes, this will be a box office success. So after making their pitch around town, they still didn't have a studio that was interested. Not to be discouraged, Heisserer decided to write the script on spec, meaning there were no attachments to the project. When he finished it, there was no guarantee that it was going to get made. But this was a story that he was passionate about and believed needed to be written. So he spent almost all of 2011 writing the script, and there are some major changes that he made compared to the original short story. The biggest change being he brought the aliens to Earth. During the original short story, the 12 alien ships are suspended in orbit around Earth. They don't come down into our atmosphere. They communicate basically through a Skype equivalent where there are small screens that transmit back and forth between Earth and the orbiting spaceships. Not wildly dynamic. So heiserer like I said, brought the aliens to Earth, put them on our doorstep, and that gave the potential for international tension, gave us a ticking clock of how long can these alien spacecraft be here before things escalate terribly. It's a theme that we've seen a few times in different films. Uh, the one that pops to my mind specifically is Independence Day. You know, you have the mothership in space and all those smaller ships that, that dissipate across the earth, but I'm getting away from myself. Um, so as I said, heiserer wrote the script on spec, and in 2012, it landed on the Hollywood Blacklist. The Hollywood Blacklist, despite its ominous name, is a list of the best unproduced scripts that are circulating Hollywood. And getting on that list led to some initial buzz and eventually secured financing for the film from independent financiers Lava Bear and Film Nation. I will come back to this, but being independently financed would end up being a very important part for the making of this film. It gave them breathing room in terms of what they can do. A lot of the time and I don't think this is going to come off as a surprise to anyone, studios will heavily interfere with scripts and productions based on what they think has worked in the past, what they think is going to work in the future, and whatever they can do to make the most money off of a production. There are dozens of examples of this throughout film history, and I'm sure you already have one in your head. For example when they were pitching it to the studios, there were numerous asks to dumb down the storyline. One studio asked to change Amy Adams' character from a woman to a man, and all kinds of things that honestly would have severely hurt the final film. All of this is not to say that studios can't make great films. They can, but they make a very specific kind of film. And certain scripts don't fit with that world. And certain scripts will never fit with that world, and Arrival lands squarely in that position. So, as I said, Lava Bear and Film Nation sign on and agree to be financiers of the film. A couple years go by as Villeneuve finishes Sicario and Prisoners, but when he's finally ready to go into pre-production, they kick it off with some key hires. In terms of cinematography, they had originally approached Roger Deakins. Roger Deakins, by far, is my favorite cinematographer of all time. If you look up his IMDb profile, pretty much every movie in the past 20 years that you've said, oh, hey, that was a beautiful movie, is done by him. He does almost all of the Coen brother movies. He worked with Villeneuve on Sicario and Prisoners, and he's the creme de la creme, but Unfortunately, he wasn't available to work on this film. When Deakins wasn't available, the producers and Villeneuve found a young cinematographer named Bradford Young. Young had most recently just finished work on Eva Duvrain's Selma, and Villeneuve was excited to work with him specifically because he had never worked on a science fiction film before he wouldn't come to it with any preconceived notions of what sci-fi should look like. And that is a reoccurring theme that we start to see emerge with everything that Villeneuve wants for this film. It's a film that is sci-fi, but doesn't feel sci-fi. They also hired Patrice Vermette as the production designer, but I'll come back to him in a minute. First, I want to talk about casting. Casting. Of course, in the lead, we have Amy Adams. She completely anchors this film. There are few actresses in Hollywood these days that are as subtle and stable as Adams, which makes her a perfect vessel for Louise Banks, who is the anchor intent on focusing on communication during an increasingly chaotic atmosphere in this film. At the time, Adams had five Oscar nominations. We're talking Junebug, The Fighter, Doubt, uh, The Master, and American Hustle. And she had her pick pretty much of any role she wanted. She was a Hollywood power player and would be happily welcome to any production she approached. When she read the script for Arrival, she called her agent and was signed on within 24 hours. She said she was excited by the role not only for its depth but also because at its core, Arrival is a story about a mother. And that's what the whole thing boils down to. There's all of the other things, but it's all about this woman's emotional response to her daughter. And that was appealing. We also get perennial supporting man Jeremy Renner. No small name of his own, not so known for his leading roles, probably best known in a leading capacity for... The Hurt Locker, but he was suggested for the project by Adams who had worked with him on American Hustle and he was very comfortable with Adams being the lead and didn't try and hog the spotlight or make the film more about his character. He understood that this was her movie and was more than happy to support her performance and support her character in the film. And of course, we also get Forrest Whitaker, who is a tour de force actor in his own right. Throughout this film, he has what I'm assuming is a Boston accent. Um, this is a less forceful performance for him in this film. Uh, but again, the the overall star was Amy Adams, and he he doesn't outshine. When it comes to the production of this film, really the first thing we have to talk about is the design of the Heptapods' language. The idea of circular writing was in the script from the very beginning. The way the Heptapods write is explicitly tied to the larger themes of the movie. Time as a circle, time as something that can be seen both the future and the past simultaneously is something that Heiser included from the start, but he didn't have a specific look in mind when he wrote the script. Production designer Patrice Vermette, who I mentioned earlier, was charged not only with designing the look of the Heptapods, but also with coming up with their written alien language. Of course, he worked closely with Villeneuve on figuring out the style and what it really reads as, but but they were both having a hard time really nailing down exactly what it should be, until Vermette's wife, Martine Bertrand, took a crack at it. Within a day, she had come up with the idea of the different parts of the circle having different translations and different meanings. And from that kicking-off point, they actually ended up creating most of a language. They had what they called the Logogram Bible, which was a collection of pages with actual interpretations of key sentences, phrases into the heptapods language. And there's something to be said for the fact that when the characters are discussing the alien language and breaking it down, they're breaking down something that can actually be translated and is actually digestible and real. And that just adds to the level of credibility of the actual production. So... Principal photography of the film starts on June 7th, 2015, a good four, almost five years after Heiser initially started pitching the film, and it lasts for 56 days. Once they've wrapped, they go into post-production for a solid six months. Now I've talked on this podcast about shorter time periods than that and longer time periods than that, and of course, every film is different. But in this case, six months is a very long time. The film is drastically recut from the way it was shot. There is a large montage in the middle of the film where Jeremy Renner's character seems to give a a large summary of how they're learning to speak the heptapod language. And all of the key facts that you take away from that are a conglomerate of various scenes that had to be cut because... Well, because I guess the film was running too long. Again, this is independently financed, so it's hard to make the argument that it was running too long, but we'll say for pacing's sake it had to be cut. The key edit, I think, that was made in post was Luis's dream sequence, where we're first introduced to the sapir Wharf. Concept which essentially states that when you immerse yourself in a foreign language, it can rewire the way your brain thinks. And that is really a key sentiment about not only the whole theme of the film, but the setup to its finale and its twist. That scene was originally just scenes between Adams and Renner and Whitaker's characters. And in post, they kind of smashed it together and found this cosmetic scene that gave you the exposition that you needed but actually still added to the character building of the film and made it all the more engaging. I would be remiss if in talking about this film I didn't take a moment to talk about the score. The score for Arrival was done by Icelandic composer Johan Johansson, and it was one of the last scores he did before his sudden death in February of 2018. And while there is a lot to be said for the cinematography and the production design of this film as a whole, Johansen's score possibly leaves the biggest mark on the overall feel of this film. Slow and otherworldly, but somehow still warm and gentle, Johansson's score was also heavily inspired by the circular motifs of the film. There are a great deal of looped phrases and looped melodies and motifs in the score, but I think most important is its use of voice. Johansen worked with a group called the Theatre of Voices and composed a lot of the score based on his breakdown and interpretation of what language is at its most base level. Johansen had also worked with Villeneuve on Sicario and Prisoners and the two had a strong working relationship. So much so that Johansson was working on the score even before principal photography began and played an active role as they were shooting in helping to frame and define the feel of the entire film. Um, It was quite a loss to the industry when, when Johansson died in 2018. After its long six months in post-production, Arrival has its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival on September 1st, 2016, and then premieres wide in theaters a couple months later on November 11th. And to overall great reviews, to this day it has a 94% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, It's often described as a sci-fi alien movie for people that don't like sci-fi alien movies. And I really have to agree, I love this movie. There's a level there's a level of depth to the characters and depth to the script where it really makes you strive to understand what's going on without feeling laborious, without feeling like you've lost something, like you're trying to play catch up. Uh, Heiser is often quoted as saying they always try to tell the audience two plus two and not four. And I think there's a balance that has to be struck with that kind of approach to a script that they nail pretty well. In its first opening weekend, arrival at $24 million, which is pretty solid. Not huge, not small. Uh, it ran for 59 weeks with a domestic total of $100.5 million. It had an international total of... 102 million so like a little bit higher but pretty equal uh, for a grand total of 203 million dollars worldwide not huge not small on a budget of 47 million dollars it's still a profitable movie and as I said before this was independently financed so when you're not tied to a studio like that when you're not beholden to the studio execs the final box office numbers are not nearly as important and there you go that's my history that's my the making of Denis Villeneuve's arrival Um, I'm going to bring it back real quick and hit up my quick facts Uh, for anyone who's listened to this podcast before you know the quick facts are the small little digestible tidbits that I don't know I think are usually easiest to stick in your mind Uh, The first of which is the Heptapod craft was based on an asteroid called 15 Inumia, which has a similar elongated oval shape. Originally, the spacecraft were supposed to be spheres in keeping with the circular themes of the film. But Villeneuve was a little hesitant. Spherical spacecraft are somewhat of a trope in the sci-fi world, and as I've said before, he was looking to avoid that, Um, see things like Star Wars for, you know, spherical spacecraft. Uh, Yeah. The film itself was heavily nominated at the Academy Awards, a total of eight nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, best sound mixing, best sound editing and best production design. In the end, it would only take home one best sound mixing. Uh, congrats to Sylvian Bellemere for that win. Johan Johansson was disqualified by the Academy for best original score because the film is bookended by On the Nature of Daylight, which is a pre-written piece by Max Richter. Um, That was a heavily contested ruling, but the film was praised by actual linguists for its accurate portrayal of how language is understood and how this kind of interpretation would be undertaken. And to bring us home, it was the 31st highest grossing film of 2016 uh, domestically. Number one that year was Finding Dory with $486 million. Or if you look at it internationally, the highest grossing film of that year was Captain America Civil War with $1.1 billion. Dot, dot, dot. Here it comes. Yeah. So that being all said, I'm going to come back to my orbital elevator here. Um, this beer is is still holding up nice. Usually, when you're looking at like a double IPA or a triple IPA like that, when it starts to warm up, it gets much, for lack of a better term, sharper and a little bit more hard to swallow. Um, this one is is not really having that that effect at all. So I'm really enjoying enjoying this beer. I will say I know it's very scary times out there right now. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed a lot of things in life. And I'm sure the last thing you want right now is to be talked to about COVID-19, but all I'll say is there's a lot of fantastic breweries creating fantastic beers out there that need support at this time. So if it's within your if it's within your power see if you can buy locally from a local brewery in these times. Um, I wasn't going to talk about it, but, you know, it's... We don't want to end up in a world a year or two from now where the only beers that we still have are from Ambev. You know, the. see if you can buy from your local brewery. That's all I'll say. And that sobering thought... Here, wait, that was a sobering thought, so I'm going to take a final drink of beer here. Yeah, sobering undone. But that will bring us home for episode 11. As always, I hope you'll hit the like or subscribe buttons on the podcast listening app of your choice. Be sure to check me out on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Movie Brewer. You can check out my movie reviews on Letterboxd. You can check out my beer reviews on Beer Advocate. And I hope you'll tune in next time when I break down what may arguably be one of the greatest comedies of all time. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrew Scott Willis, and this has been the Movie Brewer Podcast.